Well, good afternoon to all of you. I want to encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Last Easter, we, this past Easter, we covered chapter 1 as our theme passage for the morning. And so we're going to go on into chapter 2 here. Would you stand as we read God's holy and inspired word? Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This concludes God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we think through what we've just read, and, and even as some of those phrases and sentences seem to stick a little bit in our mind, not sure what they mean, I pray that you would give us understanding and illumination this morning. Help us to, to respond in the proper way uh, by the gift and, and blessing of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, chapter 2, it begins with the word therefore, and that always indicates a natural conclusion to what has just been said, namely what we read in chapter 1. And as a reminder of those things that we talked about a few months ago, I guess just month and a half ago, we, we learned in chapter 1 that the author, whom some argue to be Paul and others potentially to be Apollos, said that Jesus, the Son of God, is the heir of all things, and he made the world, that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. It's, it's one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture found there in chapter 1 of Hebrews. And we learned that he made purification for sin, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and those are all amazing things in chapter 1. But interestingly, the bulk of, of that chapter is spent showing that the Son is greater than the angels. And there are many reasons given for why that's true in, in chapters 1 and 2, including the fact that the angels serve the Son. So what we read, therefore, here at the start of chapter 2, what we need to be saying is, because the Son of God is superior to the angels, we must give more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. That's, that's what we need to be saying as we enter this chapter. And then we ask the question, well, why is that the natural conclusion to Jesus being superior to the angels? Well, the answer is given in verses 2 and 3 says, for if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And you would then ask this question. Well, what was the word spoken by angels? Because I can only think of, you know, a few things, and usually they're communicating what the Lord has said. Well, you'll probably be surprised to learn that it was the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai that was given through angels. And you go, but God gave the law to Moses. God wrote the commandments with his finger on the tablets of stone, right? Well, he, he did, but he gave all of that through the mediation of angels. Now, if you're like me, you probably have always struggled with the truth that no flesh can see God and live. And you know that at one time in the story of those, the first five books of the Bible, you know that Moses asked to see God's glory. And what did God say? He said, put yourself in the cleft of the rock, right? And I'm, I'm, it was all this roundabout situation so that he did not see God directly in his glory. And yet, we then read about Mount Sinai and we think, well, but didn't God, Moses see God face to face and receive the law and, and not die? How do you fit those two passages together, the cleft and the rock and, and seeing God face to face? Well, this is where you have to do some detective work in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 33.2, for example, tells us that God came to Sinai with myriads of holy ones, i.e. with myriads of angels. Even more interesting Listen to Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. It's Stephen who's talking to the ones who are persecuting him. And he says, this is Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness amongst the people of Israel called the congregation or church of Israel. With the angel, Stephen says, who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. And then to clarify it even further, in verse 53, Stephen says that the Jews had received the law by the direction of whom? He says, angels, and have not kept it. We even have the words of Paul, Galatians 3.19, when he says the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So those are probably passages that you just skipped right by, didn't even put two and two together to realize that what the New Testament in Acts and Galatians does for us is clarify that Moses received the law through the mediation of angels, and then that perhaps makes us understand the reference given now to angels in Hebrews chapter 2. They are the ones who delivered the law to Moses. It was one angel who slew thousands of Amalekites, right, and in a different passage altogether. And by the time you get to Jesus' day, you have such an admiration and a veneration and sometimes even a wrong worship of angelic beings that you get to this statement by the author of Hebrews and, and suddenly you realize, okay, this is important to establish that Jesus is superior to the angels. In fact, these supernatural creatures they provide service directly from god to earth but they also serve whom they serve the sun and that's what the author is trying to tell us as remarkable as angels are they are dwarfed when placed back to back with the son of god 
Chapter 1 demonstrates that. Now in chapter 2, the author advances to the next step to say that if the Son is superior to the angels, now follow this argument, which is called the argument from the lesser to the greater. If, if what the angels said was important, if they delivered the law as mediators and the law brings death to those who disobey it, here's the argument. Will there not be a greater consequence to those who ignore the words of the Son? And I guess, really, that should put to rest, right, the modern-day argument that the message of the New Testament is an easier law than that of the Old Testament. I mean, the author of Hebrews turns that argument right on the side. He's saying, actually, the easier one was the Old Testament. The more significant, the harder one is the New Testament. And if you neglected the law and died, imagine what happens if you ignore the message of salvation of Jesus Christ. And so it says, this message at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So this message of salvation that is even more important than that which was mediated through the angels, that which was taught by Christ, was first spoken by him, it was then attested to by the apostles, right, those who heard him, and it was witnessed to by the signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Often Jesus would say, if you're not going to believe the words that I say, believe what I'm doing. When John the Baptist sent to Christ and said, you know, I don't understand the direction that you're going, I don't understand why you know, in, in terms of the vision of the Messiah who's going to bring the axe to the roots of oppression and sin and, and the vision that John had of what the Messiah meant, he says, are you the one in this moment of despair as he's sitting in Herod's prison? Are you the one or should we expect another? What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, tell John these words and then give him an explanation explanation of doctrine from the old testament he says remind john that the blind see the lame are walking the diseased are cured so the miracles and works of the holy spirit testified and gave substance and evidence that the things that jesus was saying were true he said in john 10:38, and this is what i quoted earlier though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and i in the father and peter would later say in acts 2:22, that jesus was a man attested to you by god with miracles and wonders and signs and many of those who later listened to the apostles no doubt said why should we believe them what proof do you have we didn't see the works that the message is from God. And so God also gave the apostles some of the same types of gifts and abilities. And they healed diseases and blindness and, and healed the lame. And if that wasn't confirmation enough, he gave them additional special gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, today maybe we are tempted to say the same things. We're now many, many generations removed from Christ. We don't have the apostles in that first generation. And, and we say, well, why should I believe this message? Why is that so significant to me? Well, you know, I think if you are honest about it, you will say that you too, and, and as do I, we see the miracle of changed lives. 
probably the most significant work of the Holy Spirit today is to take someone who is grumpy, <laughs> snarky, mocking. Uh, we were talking about some other people that are mocking. Even Christians can be mocking and snarky. We've got to learn to move from those, from those things. But even takes the people that are stuck in their sin, that are mean, and he changes them into people that love the Lord. He changes them into people that speak words of grace. He changes them into people of kindness. And we see that absolute miraculous change that takes place in people. And so if you see that, and that's a significant thing to you, that is evidence that the message of Christ and of his salvation is real. And it's a summons to you to pay close attention to it. So the first main point of Hebrews chapter 2 is not, do we have God's revelation? That's not the, the main point. The main point is, we have plenty of God's revelation. Really, Jesus' message was the fulfillment of what we'd heard, what the people of God had heard for generations before Jesus ever came. We have all of the prophets of the Old Testament. We have the final and complete word delivered by the Son, Jesus Christ, confirmed by miracles, gifts, abilities, wonders. And the issue really is, and we see it today, right, in the miracle of changed lives, the issue is, are you neglecting this message in the way that you respond to it and live? Are you failing to take heed? Are you carelessly drifting away from the truth and becoming hardened to it? Because the witnesses have done their part. They've done all that they need. The historical, moral, spiritual reality of God's great salvation has been displayed. It is clear for everyone any lack of conviction on our part, any neglect of this great salvation is not owing to them, it's to us. We are the ones who need to change. Our minds are careless or defiled clinging to false ideas, clinging to desires and love of the world. And then you look at verses 5 through 8, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. That's a quote from Psalm 8. And when the psalmist is looking out at the creation, he isn't just dazzled by the, the stars of the universe. And, and imagine the wonder that for those of us today who, who know so much more than those of the first century and before, you know, when the psalmist was writing Psalm 8, we know how many, many, many more stars there are and what they look like and what they're made of. And so the, the psalmist isn't just dazzled by the created order, which display, as Romans 1 talks about, the invisible attributes of God, his power, his sovereignty, etc. He isn't just awestruck by the depths of the Mediterranean and it just the, the fear sometimes that the open ocean can bring into to one's life. Those are all impressive things and God made them all and he's over them all. What amazes him is the honor that is crowned upon man 
to rule such an amazing creation. You've put me over this? You've put me over billions of stars? You've put men and women over the ocean depths and, and called us to bring order to the land and everything that, that occupies it? And here we've been reading about angels in the first chapter and a half, and we're reminded that God has said that it's not going to ultimately be angels that rule this earth. What does Psalm 8 say? You've made us for a time to be just a little lower than the angels, but then we learn all other spots of the scriptures that we will one day actually rule over even the angels. And so we realize, wow, this, this letter that is our book of Hebrews is written to a tiny church, most likely located in and around Rome, it's facing persecution, struggling to be faithful. And he says, I want you to stop for a second, because right now you're tempted to give up. Right now you are being overwhelmed by the oppression of man around you. And I want you to remember what Psalm 8 says. God has crowned you with honor. Are any of you in a, an oppressive situation right now? Are any of you stuck in the midst of hard decision making or not knowing where to go? Perhaps this chapter of Hebrews is, is a good admonition for you as well to, to look to Psalmate, what has God said? God has a purpose for you. God has crowned you with honor and glory. It's an amazing thought to us just as it was back then. And it's probably even more amazing because as we look around at the creation today, we're tempted, aren't we, to look at what man has done with the creation there's no sense of ruling around us as we drive down corridor of 99 and see a thousand different things of graffiti, right? Written on every single railroad car as it passes by. And we go, we were supposed to bring order. We were supposed to bring not only order, but also glory to God by the way we stewarded his, his creation and what he's done. Look what we've done. It's the curse of the fall of man has led to this great perversion of everything. And God is going to restore this, what we've done. So it's not just, it's not just like a neutral ground and go, wow, look at how this amazing creation. God's going to put us over it. It's like God tells Adam and Eve, go and steward this creation. And we blow it. And then we still reinstall mate. But I'm going to allow you to rule over this. I'm going to raise you up out of your corruption out of your sin and i'm still going to bless you i'm still going to crown you with this glory but as the author of hebrews is is thinking through these things wrestling with them and and amazed even as the psalmist was amazed with them he realizes there's still a problem isn't there it's a big problem it's the problem of death it's the thing that most concerns this writer Whatever man has been able to accomplish and conquer, even though he's perverted things, he's still done some amazing things because he is created in the image of God, yet he has not, nor can he, solve the problem of death. Death triumphs 
everywhere. It strikes babies and teenagers and young adults and midlifers. Even while we were back, uh, Wendy and I and the family at Presbytery this past week, uh, the day that we arrived, we learned that just the night before, uh, one of the church families had lost an 18-year-old son. And so that coming Sunday when we worshiped with them, which was going to be a large Presbytery attendance at the church service, it was partially a memorial sermon. And then the whole church, instead of being able to fellowship at length afterwards, all went to this memorial service for this young man. Death affects everyone, no matter who you are. And that's what the author is painfully aware of at the end of verse 8. What hope is there for man? We don't like to admit that we can't solve those problems. We like to be in control of our circumstances. We don't like to admit that we're sinners. Instead, we try to still manage. We're like, if you will, the crew of a pirate ship. (laughs) A crew of a pirate ship has its own set of moral ethics. I mean, think about it. You have a cook who makes great food for the crew, right? And, and you're almost thinking, okay, well, we'll admire the cook. He's making this great food. And, and these, they have their own set of ethics. You don't steal from one another in a pirate ship on pain of death. But what's the problem? They're all a bunch of pirates, right? They are going to, every single one of them, whether they were a great cook or not, whether they treated each other well or not, they're all going to be hanged. And the message of the Bible is, is clear that we are condemned pirates. We're condemned sinners. We may at times treat each other well. We may have this ethic that makes us allow, uh, allows us to survive together in society without killing each other off. But the problem is, based upon God's standards, we're on a pirate ship. And we, it, it will come to land, and God will be there, and there will be a judgment. And, and the message there is clear in the Bible. All things, says Hebrews 2, will one day be subjected to him and will answer to him for what they have done with the message of the gospel. And that's why verse 9 is so important. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So friends, we may not see Psalm 8 fulfilled fully in us yet. We are still subject to death. We are subject to all kinds of weaknesses and futilities. And, and we do struggle still to, to fully move away from the habits of the sin nature. But Jesus has passed through weakness and death. And he is crowned with glory and honor. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is what makes that fulfillment in us possible and hopeful. And so as you read Psalm 8, realize this isn't just a celebration of the psalmist for God's purpose in us as humanity, as man and woman, what God's going to do with us. This is a messianic psalm as well. This is about Jesus, the second Adam, the incarnation into flesh of the Son of God who was that perfect person. 
And whereas the height of exaltation for man is to be made a little lower than the angels and to, and to receive that kind of, of attention and grace by God, it was, it was the humiliation of the Son of God, it was the depth of that to make himself a little lower than the angels. And the author doesn't want us to miss this point because for the first time in verse 9, he actually writes the name Jesus. It is Jesus who is seated in power at the right hand of God and all his enemies are subjected to him as a footstool for his feet. And he is, as verse 10 says, the, the pioneer or the captain of our salvation. That is the message that you must hear and heed this morning. At the end of life, the living Lord will tell I think many people face to face the lamentable truth. Your life was a great yet insignificant performance. You've looked to yourself. You have failed to take proper heed of the salvation message that was proclaimed by my son to those like yourself who needed to give up yourselves and lose your pride and lose your self-centered, self-exalted, right, self-righteous living. And the most important question you will ever have to answer is, is this, who is Christ? And who are you? In a passage very similar to the one we studied this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. And, and we hear that same comment. If you hold fast that word I preached to you. It's the same type of thing as we hear in Hebrews 2. Hold fast to the message that you've received. Don't neglect this great salvation. And here's Paul's conclusion in um, 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you first of all that which I received. This is the gospel message of salvation from Hebrews 2 that the authors is writing about. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again the third day. And that's the message. And it's the same message that you get in Hebrews 2, in John the rest of the Gospels, Colossians, the whole Old Testament really as it looks forward to Christ, the whole New Testament as it looks back at Christ, it is that Christ died for the sins of his people, tasted, as verse 9 says, death for us, that he was buried, rose again on the third day, and was witnessed by many. And so when Paul says Christ died for the sins according to the scriptures, he's talking about Christ was the entirety the fulfillment of all that had been spoken about by the prophets the expectation of the sacrificial system that god might look down with with grace and mercy upon a sinner all tip prototypical foreshadowing that which would happen in christ as a substitute for us when paul says that jesus was buried he's confirming that physical death of christ he was alive, he was dead. He was put in a tomb, he was buried. And that tomb was sealed shut. And the penalty of death for sin was really paid. And when he says that he rose on the third day according to scriptures, he's speaking of the stamp of approval by the Father upon the perfect atoning work of Jesus. If his death had not brought salvation to people, there would not have been a resurrection first of Christ. 
from the grave. He would have died like the rest of us would be condemned to die, but the grave could not hold him because he did not deserve to be there. And when Paul says that Jesus appeared to the 12 apostles, he's emphasizing that objective reality of the resurrection. People saw him. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't something that was made up. There were 500 witnesses at one time, the apostles at another time, many appearances. There was a real time and space historical event witnessed by a great number of people. And that is the message. The Son of God came, lived, died for sin, rose again, witnessed by others. And that, my friends, if you're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 properly this morning, is the message you have to pay close attention to. In fact, that word in in Greek actually should be pay closest attention to. Superlative, the, the most attention to this. Don't miss this. That message that I just said. Why? Because if you do not pay the closest attention to it, there is, the author says, all the way back in verse 1, the potential to drift away. And that word drifting is a word that's used in the world of sailing, in the ancient world. It referred to a ship that had slipped its anchor or that was drifting on the current. And perhaps some in hearing that kind of a definition, you might think of this boat just in a harbor slowly moving away. But the picture is more serious than that. Because the boat's going somewhere. The boat's drifting into the open ocean. It reminds me of the time that our son Kevin, we were on vacation. He's swimming in an area that there were riptides. And he begins to be taken out to shore. He's just, he's just swimming around and then suddenly looks. It's like there was that moment of, uh-oh, Right? I was just playing in this area, but actually, while I was playing in this area, this whole area was moving out this way. And then what happens? What does he try to do? He starts trying to swim back to shore and realizes that going against the current from that far out is a lot harder to do. And this author has spent a chapter and a half convincing us that the message of God's Son is worth listening to, but that's only half the story. It has been said that a preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that is what I need to do because all of those who have been comfortable floating in the middle of that riptide of modern culture and society, you need to wake up and realize where that whole area is moving towards. It's moving to the open sea. In truth, it's already way out there, right? It's off off the other side of the world. And we need to hear the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, in love with this present world, Paul writes, has deserted me. That's a wake-up call too. You can profess to be a Christian. You can be working alongside others in the kingdom of God and be excited for a time. And we're going to have this theme come back up multiple times in Hebrews. But if you are not firmly anchored in Christ, if you fall in love with this world, you're in danger of not just drifting, but drifting away. 
And as the author says, if the lesser message resulted in death through disobedience, what will happen if you neglect the message of Christ? What will happen if you trample again, as, as he will later say in, in a later chapter, upon the blood of Christ, the very reason for which he died? Those are important questions to ask. And so I would ask and, and admonish all of you comfortable ones, those who are comfortable in your lives right now, uh, in what God has blessed you with, in your families, especially you young men and women, do not become comfortable because the danger is to drift away. And I think C.S. Lewis was insightful when he wrote, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Are you reminding yourselves of what you believe and why? Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. How many of you can give the three points that David spoke on last week? Besides David, because he preached it twice. <laughs> Once at RPC and, and down here. How many of you can remember those three points? And that was just seven days ago. And that was on this, a sermon on remembering. So, you know, the whole point was if you came and listened to about remembering things and then re forgot the three points, right? It's just the reality how if we do not continually remind us of ourselves of things that are important, we will forget them and we will become comfortable. And so Lewis says it must be fed. And as a matter of fact, he says, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. He says, do not most people simply drift away. Or this quote from J.C. Ryle, I will never shrink away from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them until harvest as expect a believer to attain much holiness who is not diligent about reading his Bible, diligent in prayer, and in what he does with his time. Good statements by Ryle, by Lewis, and certainly by the author here of Hebrews. And everyone is making the point the Christian life requires that we pay attention. And we've been told what to pay attention to, the gospel. We must be focused on the supremacy of Christ. And we must be focused on the fact that Jesus tasted death. Not just tasted death. We don't just celebrate the crucifixion kind of in this abstract sense. Tasted death for, what does the author say? Us. The crucifixion was for you and me. This was not about some beautiful bits of moral teaching and a lovely life that is marred by tremendous mistakes about himself and his own importance and his relationship to men and God. If that's the case, then you have nothing worth living for. But meditate upon that good news of salvation, the fact that Jesus tasted death for you. And the comfort for the afflicted is this. If that afflicts you in soul, which is what it's meant to do, you can have hope this afternoon. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 says, If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead 
and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall ultimately never spiritually die. We'll live forever with him. Will you heed that message? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of your word that was written to the small church. We don't even know fully where the church was located, when the church was located, even who among some narrowed down choices perhaps of who wrote this book. And yet the message is powerful to us and you've preserved it for 2,000 years. We must pay attention to the message that was spoken through your son. I pray that you would give us a willingness to remember. And I pray that you would work in us to not only pay close attention, the closest attention, but Lord, that we would understand that you tasted death for us and what that reveals about us, about our depravity and sin, about the perfection of Jesus Christ, and about the opportunity through grace and mercy that you've given us to believe in him, to believe in his resurrection from the dead, and to be ourselves saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and thank you for what you've done. Amen.